Now, more tips with your host, Rebecca Rogers. Remember that in our program, we present our opinion and the opinion of our guest, and is not to be interpreted as medical advice. Hello, and welcome to our program, Lifestyle Improvement. This is your host, Rebecca. Today, we have with us Dr. Alice Honig. Dr. Honig is a psychologist and a professor emerita at Syracuse University in New York. She has presented her work in early childhood development, child care, and education nationwide and in many countries around the world. Her contributions to the field have included research in academia, advocacy, and training for parents and caregivers. Since the 1960s, Dr. Honig has been involved in the study of child development, quality of infant-toddler care, iron deficiency in infants, parent-child relationships, children's social development, and the effects of poverty in children. For over 45 years, Dr. Honig has authored and edited a myriad of books and more than 600 articles and chapters. Two of those books are titled Little Kids, Big Worries, Stress-Busting Tips for Early Childhood Classroom, and more recently, Best for Babies, Expert Advice for Caregivers and Administrators in Assessing Infant-Toddler programs. Hello, Dr. Honig. Thank you for being with us today. You are so gracious to give us your time. Nobody's as important as little children, so it's my pleasure. Thank you. You are a prolific writer, and you have written almost two dozen books. Thank you for coming here to talk to us about a couple of your books. I'm interested in knowing, first of all, what made you become interested in the subject of parent-child relationships? Every single baby and toddler and preschooler and school-age kid or teenager I've ever met has been like a teacher and taught me more and more about how we grow and what helps us flourish and become stronger so that we can meet all the stuff that happens in today's world, including cyberbullying and texting all over and many of the troubles that kids have nowadays and being in daycare for long times. And frankly, everything I learned from a kid, I just pour back to help people be more facilitative because kids are not as easy to read as you pointed out in your questions, especially when they can't talk to you yet. Correct. Was there a moment in your professional life as you were starting to become a psychologist that you said, you know, this parent-child relationship really is one of the most important aspects of my field or of the research that I'm doing. Was there a moment where you just made a decision that this is the way I want to go and this is the direction I want to focus on? That's a beautiful question because I was able to meet Mary Ainsworth while she was still alive and I knew her work very well. When I started to read the research of what happens when children have either secure or insecure, the three kinds of insecure, avoidant and ambivalent and disorganized attachments, the insecure ones. And I started to see that we could tell kids at age 11 with their boyfriends in college when they were parents themselves or grandparents, how absolutely important the earliest attachments were for later ways that we interact with loved ones or intimate ones or with bosses or our own kids. I began to realize that this was one of the most important things in the world and most people don't even consider it. They just think, oh, kids are too young. They don't even remember anything that happens to them. But the body always remembers. 
the body remembers terror, it remembers stress, it remembers anxiety, and it remembers feeling cuddled and secure and well-loved and someone's eyes shining at you and thinking you had the most delicious dimples and fattest tummy and no hair in the whole world when you were little. So the body remembers, and the newest data shows even more power. The latest data from last year was that even if your parent is very critical in kindergarten, if you were very securely attached, you're not aggressive in kindergarten. But if you had insecure attachment, the research shows that early attachment built in the first years of life, you're going to react with more aggression toward peers and others. So I felt that this secure attachment between a little one and the caregiving person is like the best insurance we could ever offer for free to a kid. So true, so true. And like you said, the body does always remember pain or pleasure. It is amazing to me how some of the things that have happened, injuries that you've had when you were maybe 10 years old, suddenly that part of your body is starting to hurt when you're 25, <laughs> correct? The body remembers. Physical and emotional. And it feels tense or it acts out and then teachers and parents think, what is happening? But you have to go back to what might have been happening very early on. Sometimes a child in therapy, because I'm also a licensed psychologist, will say to me, oh, this just started to happen, Dr. Honig, last year. And then a few sessions later, they'll say, you know, when I was in preschool, the teacher told my mom I needed some help for anxiety. I say, thank you so much, because all of a sudden, it's not just last year, but way, way back. You saw the power of being able to identify what was that parent-child relationship like in order to evaluate what were some of the behaviors that the kids had in the present moment. And that's very insightful. One of your books titled Little Kids, Big Worries, Addressing Unwanted Stress and Its Effect on Children, which is one of the reasons I became very interested in your work, because I really think that this continues to be one of the most underestimated risk factors that affect academic performance in school children today. So to get started today in our conversation about this, what do you see to be the stress that kids are dealing with right now? Remember that stresses are very different depending on a child's age. If you had a baby in your arms and a robber accosted you in a supermarket um, parking lot, he might think it's funny that a guy's waving something and you are terrified. But as soon as he's going to get to preschool age, guess what? He might scream in terror also. And if you texted a preschooler who can't even read, would he care that you're cyberbullying or even understand what's written on the machine, even though he likes to play with daddy's iPod or something, iPad, excuse me. Um, no, he won't understand. So partly it depends on what levels of development a child has about what the stresses are. So if you want, I can read you some of this, tell you some of the stresses that babies show us that something's not okay. But with babies, you want to look for stiffening of the body. You want to look, babies usually have sparkling eyes. What if they have dull eyes most of the time? You put them on your shoulder or on your tummy and they push away instead of draping all over whatever size bosom you have. They rarely smile, even though Rebecca is giving them the most gorgeous smile in the world. Compulsive body rocking, not just thumb sucking when they're tired or hungry or scared, 
but compulsive. During the day, I've been in centers where one is sitting in a corner and that little one's just rocking the body back and forth for self-stimulation because all the other kids are playing beautifully, but no one notices that that little one is doing the compulsive body rocking. Um, scattered attention. Someone walks around in childcare, sees a toy, looks at it, knocks it off the table. Everybody else is doing puzzles or playing doll play, but this child is just wandering and cannot focus well. Continuous biting or hitting of another child. And it looks like the other kid didn't do anything bad. This particularly we're seeing in the last 20 years from drug abuse in the womb, Rebecca. So that I'll get called and say, I'm a second grade teacher, Dr. Honig, and a kid picked up a pair of scissors and tried to put it in the back of the neck of the kid in front of her. What shall I do? You usually see this unprovoked aggression when there's been drug abuse in the womb, because usually if a kid turns around and hits another kid, it's because somebody fussed him or bothered him. If there's indifference to the parent at pickup time, they'd rather stay with the caregiver you wonder what's happening at home. Sometimes there is a, such a contrast between the way a trained person is being gentle with this child and the kind of contemptuous behavior that a very stressed parent might be using because they prefer another child. I've had grown-ups say to me, I was told I was the nerdy one and the ugly one and that my sister was the pretty one and she'd get all the boys. So an adult who's making far more money than we do as professors, Rebecca, has said those things to me, okay? So it means that sometimes we play favorites in a way that hurts a child's self-esteem and well-being. And some kids are very overly anxious with adults. Mommy, I'll go in and, and pat the baby down. I'll get the bottle from the refrigerator. That's over-parentification. We need parents to be parents, and we need kids to be kids that feel we're taking care of them, not that they have to do all the work that's our work. This is your host, Rebecca, and now we will take a short break, and we will be right back with more ideas on lifestyle improvement. As a caregiver, you spend your days caring for the needs of someone else. But what are you doing to help yourself? In our Caregiver Survival 101 workshop, we teach you the self-help skills that will empower you to be healthier and more productive. Do you feel tired, overwhelmed, have difficulty sleeping? Do you feel isolated? All this could be signs of caregiver stress. Chronic stress can impact your health adversely and ultimately cause irreversible and unwanted physical problems. Take a step towards your own personal care. A healthy caregiver is a better caregiver. You owe it to yourself and your loved ones to do what is needed to stay healthy today. Go to www.caregiversurvival101.com. That again is www.caregiversurvival101.com. And discover how we can help you help yourself. Or call 877-957-7387, extension 101. That again is 877-957-7387, extension 101. Caregiver Survival 101. Because care starts with you. Lack of empathy. I've seen a child who had been punished so much that when he bit or hit another child in childcare, he smiled to hear the scream of the other child. That is very scary. That's already beginning of sadism where we 
take pleasure in hurting another person. So it's really important to look for how much empathy a little child has, how much they can relax on your body, how sparkling their eyes are, how curious they are about the world. And if they do little things like flick your sweaty arm in the summertime, that's how they are. They're very sensuous creatures, but they need us to accept their whole selves and not that you're not as smart as your brother, you're not as, as, as polite as your sister was. Each one is one separate child of God, one separate human being that needs to be learned about. Of course, we're each so different. We might all like Cheerios for breakfast, but some kids like them with milk, and some kids that say, I don't want any milk in my Cheerios, Dr. Honey. Okay. You know, kids, even with taste, we don't always have the same taste for food. So those are some of the ways, and what stress does to us it increases norepinephrine, it increases cortisol, it increases our stress chemicals, it increases blood pressure, it increases our heart rate. It was very good for giving us muscle strength to run away from a tiger once upon a time when we lived in Neanderthal times or a little after. But stress continuously will decrease and shrivel your hippocampus, which is your seat of memory that you need to learn all the things and retain them. And there's an awful lot to learn in today's world. So stress is really obnoxious. And yet we need stress sometimes to think, hey, I want to get better at skiing or I want to go walk the whole Appalachian Trail or the trail you have on the West Coast. And I did it over the summertime. How good. So yes, that was a stress, Rebecca. And it was actually something that motivated you but it didn't overwhelm you. When stress overwhelms you, it actually decreases, it decreases the telomeres. Those are little caps on the ends of DNA on chromosomes. And we know that even in a young mom in her 30s, if she has one very ill child in the hospital, her stress is so great that she's losing telomeres from that stress. And we know that there's stress that's direct, like if you beat up on a kid or tell him he's a lousy little kid. And we know there's indirect stress. So the other kids in the family feel mommy's always going to see that child in the hospital and we're always left here alone to sit and be good kids while she's away. That's indirect and there's direct. So they're very different kinds of stresses and some are reactive. Like he punched me, so I'm gonna punch him back, teacher. And then there's very indirect stresses that look aggressive where a kid says, no, I'm not gonna go play ball with the other kids. And the teacher thinks, what's the matter with this kid? And the reason is not because he wants to be mean or bad, but he's very scared that he can't play ball anywhere near as good as those other kids and he'll be a failure and they'll tease him. So that's not a direct aggression or stress. That's an indirect way that he's showing you something's not okay. And very often we don't realize nobody hit him. Nobody said something mean to him, but he's scared of something. A lot of people, kids tell me I'm scared and nobody realizes it. I was in a well baby clinic and the nurse was putting a, a Q-tip into this kid's ear and he's screaming bloody murder. And the mother's saying, if you don't shut up, I'm gonna hit your mouth. And the nurse is saying, you need to sit still. It was a perfect stranger, but Honig does those things. And I went up and said, you were feeling so scared when someone sticks something and you can't even see it in your ear and you don't know what's gonna happen. And he looked at me and said, lady, I was scared. What do we learn from this? 
instead of thinking this kid is stressed or he's naughty, which we often think when a kid acts out from being stressed, we need to think what's really happening with this stress? What's going on here? And he was scared to pieces. That's why I interfered him with a perfectly strange kid that I didn't know, but I don't like kids crying and screaming. So, and as soon as he said that, by the way, he stopped crying because somebody did what, Rebecca? Somebody understood his feelings. I hope also the mother and the nurse did also. So what I'm hearing you say is a couple of things that are really powerful. Number one, stress is to some degree connected with perception. The other point that I heard you say is that when something is stressful to a child or a baby, it starts in some ways as a sensory experience. But then as they grow, the behavior moves into other expressions of inability to cope with that stress. Just think, Rebecca, how do adults deal with stress? They drink too much, they take opioids, they smoke too much, sucking on cigarettes and cigars like they still needed to suck some oral gratification to bring down stress. And what other little kids do is, or other grown-ups do, is get obsessive compulsive disorders. They have to have the window shade just here. They have to have their shoes polished just like that or they won't. One woman said to me, if she didn't have all her makeup on, she would never go to work in the morning. Wow. You mean somebody can't just see your ordinary face. So how we deal with stresses as we grow into all different uh, parts of our life, really we choose ways to bring down the stress. And sometimes those ways actually can kill us like drug overdose or lung cancer from smoking and or losing um, brain, part of our brains, hippocampus uh, from drinking as well as cirrhosis of the liver. You've probably known people who, who did that to cope with what? the stress that sometimes they didn't even remember where it came from so early in life. And nobody showed them more facilitative, positive ways to cope with stress, like yowling in the shower all the time, everything that you're feeling, but you've yelled it in the shower, the door is closed, nobody's hearing it, and you got it out of your system. Hooray! Or you wrote a diary every day. Or one of my clients had uh, tried to adopt a child who'd been burnt a lot on her legs. And when the social workers took that child away, she wrote me scads of poetry just to get the pain out of her soul because she thought she was doing such a good job. And then they took the child away from her. So, um, yes, children in, do have different kinds of stresses. And some are cultural. Suppose a child comes from a, a, a non-English speaking country where they have fled from, like immigrants have fled from gang wars. And they come into an American classroom and everybody's speaking something they don't understand. That's a stress too, even though their parents love them or the teacher is sweet and kind. So you have to think of the different kinds of stresses, poverty, homelessness. That's a cultural stress that's horrible for some kids. Trying to understand when the teacher says something and you don't know anything in English and other kids laugh. That's a different kind of stress. Or suppose you have what we call sensory integration troubles that the tag on your t-shirt really rubs you and rubs you one woman said my kid is the crabbiest kid dr honig he's always crabbing and it turned out she was doing the laundry with his t-shirts on her curtains that had a little bit of stuff in them that was itchy he had such itchy clothes he was yes crabby all day long stress and until we figured out what happened with her laundry you might think how can laundry be a stress and it was. So there are many different kinds of stresses. 
The sensory integration stresses are interesting for parents. What if something you might think, not think that chop, chop liver tastes good on your tongue? I happen to love it. But if a kid thinks it's horrible and that makes him hate almost anything that you put that's meat on the plate and you don't remember how early you try to introduce him to that and he won't eat hamburger and he won't eat this. I have one little client who won't eat one vegetable or one fruit. Wow. Do you see where these sensory integration troubles, do you think most parents recognize them? that something's too loud for a child, something's too itchy for a child, some foods have to be in a different place on the plate because if they touch, that's not a good thing for him. So those are some troubles. The other troubles some kids have that a lot of parents don't know, they'll say to me, he never pays attention, Dr. Honig. So I sat this little one down on his parents' lap and I played pat a cake and I sang twinkle, twinkle, and he paid a lot of attention for five whole minutes, which the parents assured me he never could do. But it turns out that his temperament style is highly irritable, very triggering. If something bothers him, right away he yells, right away he screams and loudly. So there are three temperament types parents need to le learn about this very triggery. Highly excitable kid whose threshold is reached right away and they let you know fast. And then there's the scared, slow to warm up, fearful kid. You don't just say, oh, go play in the sandbox. Everybody's having such a good time, honey. You gotta take that kid by the hand, tell her how beautiful her first sand pot is and how delicious it will turn out when she's doing pretend play of a, pot, a sand pie. Once you've left her there and she feels comfortable, then you can move away. But for that second type of temperament, you can't just say, honey, go play with the other kids. You'll have a good time. And then the third time of type of temperament is easygoing. In other words, uh, when I was living in Paris, I had a grandchild with me. All I had was a, a, a yogurt cup and a tablespoon. So I took him downstairs to dig in the, the sand outside the apartment building. And a toddler came over and grabbed a spoon and ran away with it. He just shrugged. He took his hands and guess what? He started filling up the yogurt pot, you know, with his hands. And the French mother ran after and screamed to me. She got back the spoon. Le mien c'est un tremblement de terre, madame. Mine is an earthquake. So you know that the temperament of her little one was one of those three styles. And the temperament of the child I was taking care of was of a different style. Do you think most parents, Rebecca, understand deeply the temperament style they have? and how it might mesh, and how it might have harmony or disharmony with their each child's different temperament styles. Sometimes, Rebecca, I've asked at a conference, what if you had that triggery, irritable, strong response kind of temperament in your first child? People say, I never have another one, doctor. But they, nobody teaches you that. Where did they teach you that? Did they teach you that in high school, Rebecca? Not at all. Not at all. No way. Thank you. And parents are so amazed. Every child might be born with a different temperament style. Oh, you don't say. The one thing that's very important to know is research has sh shown us that no matter how triggery or irritable one of the three temperament styles, you happen to have one of your children, if you are nurturing and cuddling and responsive and tuned in and feel that this is the most delicious little creature in the world and are patient, then research, particularly in Holland, with 100 mothers who had such irritable little babies, 
when they were taught these skills of swaddling and low musical tones and cuddling and patience and understanding about temperament, then their children were just as securely attached at the end of one year as any child who had an easy temperament. But do you think we teach people when they, do you think we should have a little booklet when a baby's born, just how you, how you nurse it every two hours if it needs that, but something about its temperament and any sensory troubles, integration troubles it might have. Those are things I think parents need to know. And that's why I put them in both of these books so that caregivers, parents are trying to search for, or parents themselves can learn about two of these very important ways to look at what might be stressing your child. Remember that in our program, we present our opinion and the opinion of our guest, and is not to be interpreted as medical advice. What if there was a way to help your struggling child perform better academically? Would you pick up the phone and call? Lysol Improvement Occupational Therapy Services in Puyallup, Washington, supports wellness and optimal educational performance. Instead of just reteaching information, we endeavor to identify the possible root causes for your child's learning difficulties. We offer targeted testing to assist in the creation of an individualized plan and provide you with the brain training tools that can help improve academic performance. Visit our website at www.lifestyleimprovement.com or give us a call today at 877-957-7387, extension 101. That again is 877-957-7387, extension 101, for an initial free phone consultation. Lifestyle Improvement Occupational Therapy. We're ready to partner with parents and to help your child succeed. Thank you so much for joining us today on Lifestyle Improvement for part one of our interview with Dr. Alice Honig. Dr. Honig is a psychologist and a professor emerita at Syracuse University. She has presented her work in early childhood development, childcare, and education nationwide and in many countries around the world. Her contributions to the field have included research, academia, and advocacy and training for parents and caregivers. Since the 1960s, Dr. Honig has been involved in the study of child development, quality of infant-toddler care, iron deficiency in infants, parent-child relationships, children's social development, and the effects of poverty in children. For over 45 years, Dr. Honig has authored and edited more than a dozen books and more than 600 articles and chapters. Two of those books are Little Kids, Big Worries, Stress-Busting Tips for Early Childhood Classrooms, and more recently, Best for Babies, Expert Advice for Caregivers and Administrators in Assessing Infant-Toddler Programs. Thank you so much for joining us on Lifestyle Improvement for part one of our interview with Dr. Alice Honig. And don't forget to join your host, Rebecca Rogers, next Sunday morning at 7.30 for part two of our interview with Dr. Alice Honig.